You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 68. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Venzel. You can find me at Afterthoughts. That's my blog. It's where you'll find my thoughts on educational philosophy and homeschooling, as well as my Charlotte Mason study guides and workshops. My co-hosts today are Misty Winkler and Abby Wall. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and too many projects. With her blog, podcast, and membership, she helps you organize your attitude so you can organize your life. Find her over at simplyconvivial.com. Abby is basically the queen of the Scully sisters' sistership. Abby is a country-living farmer, rancher, a loving wife, and mom of five who homeschools and reads whenever she can. Speaking of the sistership, it's not too late to join in on the sistership premier Shakespeare mentorship led by Kelly Cumbie. She's guiding us through as you like it. If you ever wanted someone to hold your hand through a Shakespeare play, Kelly is your woman. To join us, just go to scolesisters.com slash sistership and sign up for premier membership. Today, the three of us talk about solutions to rescue a ho-hum classical education. It's so easy to get away from school A and become rabid box checkers. How do we revive ourselves when that happens? That's what today's discussion is all about. And so without further ado, let's get to it. Let's start off with our school A every day. Who wants to go first? I would like to go because mine will be very short. I just started a new book. This is Abby. I just started a new book and it is called Prisoners of Geography and it is 10 maps that explain everything about the world. That's its subtitle. Um, So it is book one in the politics of place series and it is by a former, I think he was a BBC news reporter and his name is Tim Marshall. It talks about how geography shapes not just history, but destiny and why things, you know, why people are led into NATO, why people aren't, and their proximity to Russia, even after the Soviet Union, and all these different things. I'm just in the Russia part right now, which is the first thing. So it has all these really neat maps, and then they have the different types of borders in them. So some of them have, like, contested borders, geographical, political borders, and then they have like one of the, his reasonings for Russia not being able to be a superpower is because they do not have a warm water port. And that huh. is what limits them because parts of the year when they need to export and ship things in, all of their ports on both sides of the country are impassable. You cannot get through because of the ice for like three or four months. So they wanted to have one in the Black Sea but there's a country there. And, and it, so it's really helping me with my geography. Oh, inconvenient. There's a country there. <laughs> yeah, they should just take it. There. Yeah, no, and, and that's what they're talking about. But they have some things. And then their kind of tagline is the U.S. is far away. Like with the whole Georgia incident in 2008, like, oh, well, we'll we're pretty sure the, the U.S. will come in and help us out. But it's like we're too far away and 
we didn't want to get involved in that. And so for other reasons, they just said, so they kind of play nice with their neighbors and put up with stuff because they get almost all of their power and heating from them. So they don't want to put it. So yeah, it's just really interesting and how Russia is claiming ethnic Russians all over. If you had a grandparent born in Russia, but you're now a Ukrainian or all these different things. So the Black Sea, they would really like to go through uh, Moldova, but they can't. And then like Crimea, I think is how you say it. There's a disputed border there and the Ukraine. So all of those things stop them from getting into the Black Sea where there's a warm water port. So anyway. Fascinating. You know what Russia needs? What? Global warming. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty sure it will work out for them. So yeah, he's got all sorts of just neat little tidbits and it's, you know, pretty succinct. So like the Russia chapter is only 20 pages, 25 pages, but it really gives you a really good um, thing. And he doesn't do everything. Like he said, Australia needs its own book because it's so interesting how that works out. But my next one is China. So it should be interesting. I really like it. That's good. That sounds really cool. So you said Politics of Place series. Are there other books? I guess there are. I I just bought this because um, a friend in real life had said this. It had been given to her as a recommended read, and it was something outside of her normal reading. And she said it was her favorite book of the year. And then I put it on Instagram, and like two different people said, hands down, it was their favorite book of the year, which is odd for a geography book. Right. I was like, well, then I guess I'm glad I bought this. So, but it's really well written looking for the other series in the books. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, It's a flag worth dying for the power and politics of national symbols and the age of walls, how barriers between nations are changing our world. So I'm sure those are really interesting too. Cool. Well, Misty, you want to go next or want me to go next? Sure, I'll go. So this All is right. Misty. Hi, I'm Misty Winkler. <laughs> and I feel like you don't even have to say it. We could just play a recording. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing one that I finished. So I'm super excited about Ooh. that. Kenilworth by Sir Walter Scott, which is... I've never read that one. So basically, Sir Walter Scott is historical fiction, mm-hmm. right? Which is kind of funny because I read so much historical fiction in high school and my early 20s. And so it's kind of funny to start reading. I'm like, wait a second. This is just old school historical fiction. <laughs> Didn't he invent, hist- I feel like he invented historical fiction. Probably so. And, and it definitely is fiction. It's right. not just a story. It's definitely fiction. He, okay. he played around with the facts to make a good story. <laughs> So, <laughs> so, so Kenil- maybe it's just fiction. <laughs> <laughs> it's dangerous fiction because you're like, oh, well, this happened, right? And you're like, well, not really. <laughs> so Kenilworth is about uh, Queen Elizabeth. I love the era of Elizabeth I, and I've read all kinds of history books specializing in that period of the Tudors. Yeah. And so I was excited to read it. The primary storyline is about Dudley, actually. So if you know Queen Elizabeth, she had, she never married. All the princes were courting her. There was an Englishman that everyone was pretty sure that she loved and wanted to marry. So it's the, it's the storyline that everyone likes to play off of. Right. I know there are movie, I forget what the movie is that plays off this same storyline. He was inconveniently married, <laughs> like already married. <laughs> uh. 
<laughs> and in real life, he was married before Queen Elizabeth was queen. And his wife never was at court, but it wasn't secret at all. And I think that the historians think that she might have had breast cancer. She was sickly. And the so wife, you mean? the wife, okay. his, his wife that was never at court. Okay. And it did look like Queen Elizabeth would have favored a marriage with him if it would have been possible. Interesting. And then she falls down the stairs and dies. And so there has to be an investigation. Like that's kind of suspicious and weird and maybe a little bit too convenient. Right. <laughs> and he is exonerated in the end. It wasn't on purpose. It was an accident or possibly suicide. But still, it was enough of a scandal. The queen couldn't marry him. You know, he that was, was tainted. Yeah. So in Sir Walter Scott's version, it's a secret marriage that happens. Like, it's a brand new marriage <laughs> while Dudley mm. is reaching the height of his power. Hmm. He want, he's super ambitious. But he's also surrounded himself by people who are even more ambitious, who are helping him along and doing, manipulating even himself and others behind the scenes to catapult him into power. Hmm. And so he gets married in secret and keeping secrets like that doesn't really work out for anyone <laughs> very well. And so it's kind of how the, the secret plays out. But that's not actually what happens. So it's, it's really entirely fiction because the main, that main storyline is just totally false. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great story. It was, it was exciting. It was interesting. It had great characters. Uh, it just wasn't history, except for the fact that I thought the way he wrote the character of Queen Elizabeth was really, really good. Hmm. So... Fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was a good read. But no more novels till summer because even Sir Walter Scott had me up too late <laughs> several nights. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the worst. <laughs> Feels so good at night, but in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't read novels at night anymore. Yeah, I, I really should not. I only allow myself on afternoon walks. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Wow. Audio. Yep. Audio. And uh, yeah. And I have to walk. So sometimes I take really long walks. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So how about you, Brandy? Well, I'm Brandy. And mine is, I think I used this last season, but I'm using it again. It's called The Philosophy of Tolkien by Peter Kreft. And um, I'm actually, I'm bringing it back up because I just have to recommend it. I can't recommend it enough. It's so good. And it's not one of those... I don't know. I feel like there's these, um, there's this type of book out there that's like always trying to make Tolkien's work directly Christian. They want to right. draw parallels and say like, this person was Jesus and this person was whatever. And those, I, I think, well, I think if you read anything that he said about his own work, you'll know that's bogus. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I was a little bit hesitant about this, but someone recommended it to me. And so I thought, well, you know, we'll try this. And I, I love this so much. And it, it is, is philosophy, not theology. And he is treating it as it ought to be treated, which is as a philosophy in a pre-Christian era. I just think it's so good for teens. I think for 
teens, if they have at all read Tolkien, which of course mine have, and then you're wanting to introduce them to philosophy before they graduate, but you don't, you know, you're not going to like do a philosophy textbook. You're going to just give them some real basics. I think this is a super easy way to do it. I did not have room in our schedule to do a full on philosophy course, but I also didn't want my senior to graduate without me ever doing some actual philosophy with him. I mean, he did some logic and stuff, but I wanted like the real deal philosophy. So he is reading Sophie's World. But in addition to that, I added the philosophy of Tolkien. So the chapter we're on right now is on epistemology. And it was just, it was so good. It was so good. And actually ended up accidentally dovetailing with Sophie's World. So that was fun. (laughs) But anyway, I just think, especially if anybody has a kid that is really into Tolkien and wants to introduce philosophy, this is the perfect angle for it. And of course, Kreft is a wonderful philosopher, so he's worth reading anyway. So we're having a good time. Kreft obviously loves Tolkien for its own sake. You know, he loves the books. He loves the characters. He has read a lot of the Inklings other than that. And so you can feel the love as he's talking about it. Like this is not your dry, dull philosophy textbook at all. So totally fun. Good. It's going in my Amazon cart. (laughs) I'm glad I already owned that one. Yeah, I don't have that one. I have a different one by him, but I don't have that one. And my son does love Tolkien and Tolkien, however we say it. However you say it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, my 14 year old started asking some really big philosophical, not really theological, philosophical questions. You know, she said something like, you know, it's too bad. Nobody's ever thought about this before. (laughs) 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 Well, turns out people talking about it for about 2,500 years, at least (laughs) it's called philosophy. So, um, so we didn't have, she said that so late in the year, we didn't really have time to put it into the schedule or anything. So I think we've decided that she and I are going to read it just over the summer. Like we're just going to read and discuss that maybe once or twice a week or something. And Misty, you sent me a book that was, that's really good. And it's about a philosophy too. And it's like little chapters on each philosopher. What was that one called? Is that one like a hundred great thinkers? Maybe. I don't know. I'm going to have to look it Something up and like to put it up, but it was so good and it was really interesting. And so we've been going through that. I think it's it's like Sophie's world without the weird story in between. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and, it's, the, and the snippets about the philosophers are actually better written. Yeah. It's nice and short and succinct. Um, yeah. I tried Sophie's world and, um, you know, as I was like, well, maybe we'll do this one. And I started reading it and it was, you know, uh. so I, I got this one from Misty. She's like, oh, here, try this one. And it was, it's really good. So Sophie's world is a little bit too much. Trying too hard. (laughs) Like a good idea. It's you're trying too hard. It doesn't actually work. I get what you want to do. It's not working. (laughs) Hmm. I haven't finished it yet. So I like the weird, but my thing is it has to be satisfying at the end. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I was afraid of that because I felt that way. Like I really like his Christmas mystery. Justin Garter's Christmas mystery. But the end of it is not as satisfying as it could have been. <laughs> well, basically, like the story outline changes as the philosophies, with the philosophies. Like the story mirrors the philosophies. Right. Yeah. So that means that it ends with modernity and, and nihilism. We, yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about how that was going to work out. So it actually turns out that we can't know anything. There really isn't any real reality. <laughs> and all of this is just weird. We're all characters in someone else's story. 
or we're nothing, you know, whichever, whatever you want to think. Interesting. <laughs> Alice wakes up. So then the whole, the whole um, book is pointless. That's the way I felt. <laughs> Interesting. I threw it in the garbage. <laughs> I, wow. I own because it still. I, yeah. I didn't think that the descriptions of the philosophies in between the story were good enough mm. to make it worth it. It's like there are okay. better summaries of all these different philosophies. So, yeah. Interesting. I actually think that that's an interesting literary technique, though. The, the, oh, yeah. I've appreciated it so far, just how the fantasy part is changing as the philosophy goes on. So, yeah. I don't know. You know, that's I, thought true. They have to, I don't have time to have them watch, oh, listen, uh, not listen, read Kierkegaard or anything before we leave home. And so <laughs> maybe I'll just let them do this. And, flounder a little <laughs> uh, all right well let's go on to our red hat topic of the day uh, <laughs> i'm really enjoying myself i said so i mean guys you have to see the the graphic for today's episode so if you just downloaded this and have no idea what i'm talking about you have to go to our website and look at it actually our instagram page will have it right but yes. I, I sent the picture to my husband you know so it's like a a generic red hat, like a Trump hat, but it says make classical education school again. You know, my, I sent it to my <laughs> husband and he was like, that's kind of too controversial. You shouldn't do that. And I was like, have you met us? <laughs> <laughs> I showed it to my 14 year old and he said, edgy. <laughs> edgy. <laughs> that's awesome. An edgy homeschooling podcast. There you go. Uh, um, I was like, well, I was having a good time. <laughs> anyway, we're not talking politics. This is not a political show. And this is not to be misconstrued as an endorsement of Trump. We just think it's funny. <laughs> so, so we are literally talking, to use the word literal, because I know how much Misty likes it. I about, it also. <clears throat> yes, so you too. I'm just trying to make you happy today. Um <laughs> We're talking about making classical education school late again, but school late is, it's a really big concept. And so we're going to narrow it down. And we narrowed it down by having a Voxer conversation in which Misty talked and I typed. (laughs) 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 So I came up with three, I kind of coupled a couple things. So I came up with three aspects that we're going to try to cover in an hour or less. The first one was, they're kind of like two sides of of an idea coin. So self-awareness versus like self-forgetfulness. And then the second one was agenda and calculation. And the third one was attitude of learning. And I thought we'll just go through and talk about these three topics. And then we'll talk about kind of solving them. Cause I think these three topics cover pitfalls that a classical homeschool can fall into and therefore make it not school A, even when we have really good intentions of having a school A filled homeschool. So I I was going to let you start us off. Well, did you have something yeah. to say? Sorry. Well, I think that the it's easy to start talking about, you know, what is classical education? Are you a classical educator? And we quickly jump to the which curriculums are you using? What curricula? Wait, that sounds wrong. <laughs> um, which books are you reading? What practices are you doing? Uh, what subjects are you studying? And we let that be the definition of classical education. And then, you know, maybe Scola is a nice add-on or that's something that we're trying to do alongside of these other things. And it is, 
but it seems like an extra. And, you know, in the history of classical education, it really is vital to the approach to knowledge and education that classical education is about. Classical education isn't ultimately about knowing particular things. It's about coming to love and want and Mm. seek knowledge and wisdom. Amen. So I feel a Charlotte Mason quote coming on. (laughs) We got to move on quick. (laughs) Too late. Too late. Um, Volume six. Yeah. How much he cares. um, Well, no, actually it wasn't that one. It was that it's near the beginning. I think it's like, I just quoted this recently. So I think it's like page 18, page 19 beginning. Anyway, but she says, I hope we have succeeded in making education what it ought to be a system of applied philosophy. Ooh. I loved that because it was not starting with checking all our boxes at all. It, ha- it had to start with being able to think philosophically, right? Having the right mindset. So you reminded me of that when you were saying that we, it's so easy to jump to curriculum, try to say like whether or not something's classical, but she said it ought to be applied philosophy. I love that. Yeah. So let's talk about our first pitfall. Misty, you brought this one up specifically, so I'm going to let you take it away here. But this idea of having self-awareness versus self-forgetfulness. So the self-forgetful element of Scholae is something that really struck me when I was writing my talk for the Learn Retreat in 2018. And it was one of my three main points there in reading Peeper, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. You know, he talks a lot about it being receptive. The attitude of Scolé is receptive. And in trying to break that down or think about that in terms we're more used to, I thought that this term self-forgetful was just another way of saying receptive. Or it's, mm. a, it's an element of receptive that I think we forget about. And if we miss the fact that to be receptive we have to be self-forgetful. We're missing. We won't actually get there. So that means that we're not driven by our own agendas and we don't have the self-awareness while we're learning. It's not about me. It's about this thing in front of me. So that means maybe that the rest of my schedule isn't at the forefront of my mind or it might be what I'm going to get out of this isn't at the forefront of my mind. There are a lot of different ways that we kind of can get in the way of real learning taking place. And so both in our own learning as moms and then also in the atmosphere of our homeschools, how can we help facilitate a focus really on the knowledge that we're learning about and not on ourselves? I feel like narration solves part of this problem for a couple reasons. First of all, because the discipline of narrating requires the discipline of attention. And I don't really think you can pay attention to two things at once. So I think by having to have your focus on what is at hand because you're going to narrate it, it keeps your focus off of yourself. So your feelings, your issues, whatever, all those things kind of become secondary to just giving the actual narration. And I always feel like that's why narration is important. Before we talk about how we feel or whether we disagreed with it or because I mean, when you talk when you're talking about teenagers there's an examination sort of conversation that goes afterwards where they're grappling with the material personally but i feel like before that 
the act of doing justice to the author and having to just state what the author said and making sure that we clearly understood him, I feel like that level of attention prevents the type of self, or at least some of the types of self-awareness we're talking about. Because whether I'm thinking about how I feel or whether I disagree, or whether I'm thinking about my schedule and what I have to make for lunch later, all of that has to go away if I'm really going to do a good job narrating. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was also thinking, though, how I was thinking that this kind of self-forgetfulness is almost like the science of relations. We'll mm-hmm. use we'll use Charlotte Mason, right? Like you're thinking about one thing or you've just read something and then my kids do this often, you know, when they are telling me something and they're like, oh, it reminds me of, and right, it's a reminding of me of this, but then they're they're making these connections that are not, right, they're actually thinking. Is, yeah. is, uh, right. is, is that's what it is? It's just really good thinking and thinking not in the sense of, I or me, but just thinking in general. Mm -hmm. So anyway. I do think that overall narration is a great tool for focusing for attention. Yeah. I have still had students who are, who use techniques because their primary goal is to move on to the next thing. Ah, Um, And so they're doing, they're doing their bare minimum to quickly narrate, like they're, they're narrating and their narration's fine and it is focused, but still their, their attitude and their goal while they were doing it was still like driven by their own agenda. And I know agenda is our next one. So it kind of- They do overlap. They blend a lot. One of the connections that I would love to explore more is that there's some connection here with flow. Oh yeah. And deep, deep work where you, that moment where you lose track of time, you're like, you're losing, losing track of yourself. Right. Yeah. And you're just, you're just immersed in it. And I think that's really when Peeper talks about being receptive, it seems like it overflows a lot with the descriptions of what's now called flow. The book by Mikhail Chisminski. Hi. Yeah, the- <laughs> Pretty close. Before we go on to that, I, with the self-forgetfulness, can I add one more thing before mm-hmm. we... I, I was thinking about how, how we approach our children causing self-awareness. Mm. And we, I think we've all done this even with toddlers. Oh, you're learning. Oh, you're doing this. You're, and we're putting the focus on them. And they were lost in it. And we get so excited because they did this or they did that. But we turn it into a self-awareness that they weren't supposed to have. They didn't have compliments and criticisms both. Like lots of comments about them can backfire into extreme self-awareness if we're not careful. Well, and I think that's why there's uh, more of an emphasis on talking about grit and what is it, fixed and, and growth mindsets rather than saying, you know, you're smart, you're learning, right? Those specific things. It's like talking about it in a different way, right? That your brain is growing when you're doing these difficult things that, you know, you don't like. Um, <laughs> so um, I don't know. Well, Brandy. Uh, but see, I think even with that, we're pretty focused that, on self. Because we're, st- we're saying, so now we're making it, we are making it bigger. So now it's not about immediate success or failure. It's about a long-term vision. But I think when Misty's talking about self-forgetfulness, she's talking about poetic knowledge. Like yes. yeah. yourself, yourself is in the object of study now and you're mm-hmm. not thinking about yourself at all. And so I think I have been the cause of my children turning inward at times. 
because I have said things that changed them from self-forgetfulness to self-awareness because of how I did things. And I think we can do this with older kids. They read a book and we don't feel like we know how to have a conversation with them maybe. And so our questions are all self-centered. How did you feel? What did you think? Did you like? Did you not like? All of those questions make them the center of the world and aren't actually talking about the book much at all. We're talking about them and their feelings. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. See, I, I feel like it starts when they're little. You made blocks. Aren't you so smart? You know, you built this <laughs> tower. You did that. You did that. And then it goes all the way through the high school years. How did you feel? What about this in your soul and your reaction and your, our whole way of interacting with other people is to put the focus on them and not on the object of study. Like to the point where I don't even know really how to unwrap all of that, but it gets in the way of school A for sure. Right. And it's not like there isn't a time and a place for teaching them some self-awareness. Oh, right. You know, like, yeah. But when the point is learning or even playing with the learning, if they're just enjoying it, which is the being receptive, that is the school A. If then you bring up something that makes them self-conscious, then that, that ruins the moment. So like if it was the toddler with the blocks, the school A response or the, the way to come alongside that is just to enjoy, you know, knock the tower over and laugh and build another one. To, to participate in the playing, mm-hmm. not to, you know, let them know that this is a, this is going to help their developmental milestones. <laughs> like, <laughs> it will, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I was thinking to the whole idea of a whim category. Oh yeah. Was hmm. kind of how kids kind of get, they kind of get distracted or off, you know, off things, but then they're playing with things you introduce a mathematical concept and they kind of run with it. Or um, when I'm choosing things and you just, you kind of grab a whim book and it turns out to be just great. You just really enjoy it for its own sake. I think that's part of that too. It just kind of reminds me about the the need for the balance in the homeschool. Like how do we, and this is a real question to you guys, how do you balance the idea of whim and the value of whim with the idea of of definite work assigned and in a given time. And we want our education to be school A, but we do want to instill habits of hard work. Those things can seem at conflict. So how do you, how do you deal with that? I don't know. That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of it is to see that they are both healthy elements in leisure. Mm -hmm. Pieper distinguishes between intellectus and ratio. And I can't say it like Dr. Ratio. <laughs> I'd like to pretend to be Dr. Perrin for a minute. <laughs> but both are needed. The thing is that usually an age or a school of thinking ends up overemphasizing one instead of seeing that they both work together and both are needed. Mm. So there, there is a definite course of study and we do need to be using our time well. Scolay, restful teaching, all of that doesn't mean that we just take twice as long just for the sake of being at leisure. Sure, not graduating your kids at 28. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Where leisure means we just don't do hardly anything. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I have probably the other end. I have one child who is disgusted that I have assigned them fairy tales (laughs) um, this year. 
they are also my hardworking, give them a checklist. They want mm. to get things done. They love actual work. <laughs> they they mm-hmm. would give up all intellectual pursuits if they could just go and work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they enjoy some things, but um, the disgusted conversations that we've had, I don't see the point of reading these ridiculous stories which makes me want to assign them more (laughs) Um, because this need for that balance, right? That poetic knowledge and that, right? I like like the answer because it's good for you and you'll thank me when you're 30. (laughs) There you go. Okay. So QI rolls. Okay. I'll just 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 quote Cindy Rollins so that you don't end up as a communist. Oh, there we go. <laughs> okay, I like that. So there's a there's a balance. As I was trying to think about how I've solved this, or I shouldn't say solved it, how I've reconciled it, the two in my own home. I think for me, my only solution has been that we have school hours and we have non-school hours. Mm-hmm. And so the school hours, I guess, are more to you. If we were going to use Peeper's terminology, they'd be more of the the ratio, the the actual work. You're doing the work a given amount in a given time, right? You're managing your time well, all this. But then there is the afternoon free time that they have, that my students have, that is the intellectus. I mean, yeah, sometimes they go and play and they they aren't like sitting around thinking and being brilliant or whatever, but I, they have time to do, to, to do that if they would like to sit and be brilliant. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's up to them. I, I've never figured out how to put the intellectus into the school day and still be done by lunch. I don't know how to do that. Not well, that you have to be done by lunch, but done by lunch is a big thing here. <laughs> You're real homeschoolers. Well, That's old right. school. That's right. Well, and intellectus is one of those things that isn't within our control. Ratio, we can yeah. kind of control. True. Intellectus is something that is outside of ourselves. We cannot. It comes, it's like almost kind of those like little light bulb moments, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not something that ever comes because we are seeking after it. It comes in maybe in spite of it, right? Um, uh, Sometimes. I also think playing and using the imagination is just that foundation where that really started, right? The kids who really have great imaginations, I think, have an easier time of this intellectus. Mm. When all the kids don't, they have a harder time playing and interacting in that imaginative world. So I think it starts there. Well, and the the intellectus is the non-analytical. So we Mm -hmm. do do things in our school day that are taking in knowledge in the non-analytical mindset. Okay, that's true. And I like to think of that school day as feeding the intellectus Mm -hmm. so that then it's possible for them to be brilliant someday if they (laughs) did that. <laughs> they chose to do that. <laughs> I don't know why I expect them to choose to do that when I rarely choose to do that. So <laughs> maybe I should set an example. Abby, I feel like you kind of moved us into the agenda calculation yeah. category with that. some of what you said. No, I mean, I'm thinking, why don't we just go ahead and mm-hmm. and talk about that? Maybe one of the reasons why we're tempted to engage in a quote unquote classical education that is not school A is because that's what can be easily measured. And we want to be able to calculate and set an agenda and meet our goals and all this stuff. And intellectus feels really unwieldy um, Mm -hmm. and makes us 
suspect and we don't know if we're getting enough done or, or doing enough or I don't know. I just feel like we start, there's a lot of self-doubt around it because we don't have control. Yeah. It's when people start saying, just trust the process. And you're like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I think I've said that before. Yeah. Oh, I know I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And telling yourself that too, like, no, this, this will work. Other people have told me it will. And I've seen it work in other, in other days, just not today. Today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, or if it's the kids that are functioning oh, yeah. under that mindset also. Right. It's true. Yeah, they totally can. This was not so much in Leisure, the Basis of Culture, not that it's not there, but when we read that In Tune with the World book that we did our mm-hmm. Christmas episode on and the whole yes. thing about festivity, this was where I finally got a grasp of calculation. And I, I think when he's, he says, you know, festivity is not calculated, I really felt like in context he was talking you know, especially about money and this idea of just not putting a price on everything for, well, a great example would be Christmas. Not that we're all going to like go into debt and all this irresponsible stuff for Christmas, but if we're not careful, we can be miserly with Christmas because we're calculating everything down to the penny and we're putting prices on it and we're not really being lavish. And there is an element of being lavish that is involved in festival. And I think it was people who said that you know, we have a God who gave his only son, who gave us everything, who is an extravagant giver. And so we can reflect that during festival times. And that's a, that's a good thing. But I was thinking about with calculation, how it can go so far beyond that. And just everything in the school day can try to be calculated. And we use, use the word agenda, Misty. And I liked that because it can be calculated in the sense that I'm always trying to get what I want out of it. I'm always trying to determine what I want for this child and that child. And it's, it's almost like trying to play God that I think that if I could just calculate our whole day, I would have this type of control that I wasn't really designed to have. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of this saying, right? You knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing mm-hmm. where it is. So if we just had the right schedule, if we just have the right timetables. If we, if everyone would just sit down and listen, (laughs) things would be great. (laughs) And (laughs) we are, I don't know, I'm, I'm resistant at times. And so are my kids. I think though, too, without agenda and calculation, right. But also setting a time, the space and time for coming to learn is a big part of that. So having time set apart to learn is essential to, but then not following the clock quite so strictly. I don't know. How does that work with short lessons there, Brandy? (laughs) Well, it is that struggle. The struggle is the balance between using our time well and not being ruled by the clock. Right. And then it's better said. It's not. (laughs) 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 And it's not. It's also not like you shouldn't have an agenda overall in the big picture. It's like you need a direction, right. you need all that, mm-hmm. but it's in that moment of say teaching, what's the primary focus? Yeah. Being done or learning, you know, the the material in front of you. Is there even the possibility that maybe you might get lost in it? Then you're probably right. actually learning. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the part of this comes by maybe doing some heavy hitting agenda and calculation at the beginning. I like to think of it as concentrated work. It were not like everyone is concentrating the whole time, 
but where the it's like the schoolwork that is on my kids' checklist is all a concentrate. It's rich. It's multifaceted. It's all worthwhile. And if any of it is cut, we've really lost something. Mm-hmm. And it would be so easy to continue to add good, good things to the school day. But I try to keep it at the minimum best things we can do so that we can have a short school day so that they can have actual free time. I don't think it's my job to fill all their time. So that forces me to choose even between multiple good things. I'm like, well, pick one. (laughs) We're not not actually going to do them all. And then sometimes that flexes because you need to take more time to help them get to the place of learning. But getting to the place of learning is the goal, not finishing the checklist or keeping the timetable running or any of that. Those are all tools to help us, but it's the student learning their relationship that's the main driver. Maybe it matters what the agenda is. Like maybe it's not Mm. so much that it's bad to have an agenda. I think calculating gets to the heart of it because it has this element of control Mm -hmm. involved in it. And there's this penny-pinching, miserly sort of attitude underneath it or something. See, it feels the opposite of a generous education. Right. But with agenda, when you have really big, huge goals, I want my children to have a relationship with this. I want them to love. I want them to grow in virtue. It all sounds really nebulous, but it's also far less controlling because when I say things like that, then it's like, well, dear Lord, please help me because I know I can't make that happen. Right. I, you know, I can try to set the conditions and I can try to not mess it up. You know, I do think I can step in and harm relationships if I'm not careful. But having a big picture agenda maybe protects us from being just really controlling because <laughs> <laughs> it can't be forced and we know it. You know, I have like the ultimate picture in controlling. So Common Core, I've come to know a little bit about Common Core. There are these things called I can statements. Have you ever heard of them? No. Okay. So I don't know if this is all common core. I think this is all common core. It's measured through these I can statements. So you're going to have these statements and they're, they go from simple to complex and their whole goal is to build the skills. And so every day of their lives is centered around I can statements. So in math, maybe today's I can statement or this week's I can statement is I can add fractions with, with a common denominator. You should not think about anything else in your math class, because this is the I can statement that you're working on right now. It could be, you know, I can identify a verb in a sentence if you're in your literature class. Well, you shouldn't be thinking about nouns because you're doing the I can statement for verbs this week. Does that make sense? Everything is calculated from kindergarten through 12th grade. It feels very much when you look at the totality of it, like, first of all, we've made learning into just acquiring information there's no wisdom, no love, no, like you can't, you can't measure those things. So they're not on the list. Nowhere will you find it. Say, I can love the great Gatsby or something like, no, you're not going to find that anywhere because nobody cares if they love it or not. But everything is calculated. Their every move is calculated. Their every thought <laughs> is calculated. And I don't think that every single school is this way, but it was very interesting to me how much school has changed from when I was in school. I mean, yes, they were testing us once a year, but this is a whole new level of crazy. So when I think about control and calculation and having an agenda, I think about the public school and what they're doing to these students. (laughs) 
how it's possible, depending on the kind of teacher you had, where you could be calculated as a failure just for thinking about something else instead of what's on your I can statement for the week. To bring that to the homeschool, though, we don't do that. We're never tempted to do anything <laughs> to that level of detail, I don't think. Like, I don't know anyone who ever has. But how often, if we're not careful, I, oh, what was I? Well, I won't name it, but there were a number of us in the homeschool blogging community that a few years ago were sent a grammar text that they were testing on homeschoolers. There was so much stuff laid out and I, I couldn't do it. I told them I just wasn't going to write the review <laughs> because I just couldn't be that controlling. There were all these details to cover and it was hard to distinguish what was important and what wasn't. And it was completely overwhelming. And I just felt like, couldn't we just talk about a sentence already? Well, yeah, anyway. that's, that's what I'm thinking about, you know, concentrated work is that it's easy to think that more is better. Yeah. And the more we do, the better we'll be. And if a curriculum has a lot to do and we do the work, that will be what makes us smart or know all the things we're supposed to know when most of the work is busy work. <laughs> and busy work doesn't help you know anything or love anything. It's more likely to kill both. Well, that's the rigorous, right? Right. Rigor mortis, rigorous. <laughs> yeah. I mean. If rigor is coming, not by actual interesting hard work, but just by busy work. Yeah. But we have a hard time. If, if we don't know the material, it's really hard to distinguish. You, know, you can't really say, well, I don't know. Is this busy work? The curriculum right. writer put it in here and I don't know grammar. So probably we have to do all of this. I did a grammar program with one of my kids in middle school. But I thought, well, you know, I could teach diagramming and grammar just on my own with a reference or two. And I've done that. But, you know, just working through something that has it laid out and we can just do the next page. That's, that's what I need this year. Right. And we ended up doing maybe a fourth of the book because it was just needlessly intricate. Like we weren't understanding grammar better. It was, it was like trying to trick you. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. No one has time for this. We'll do one sentence, not 20, especially when they're this convoluted. <laughs> I have a question. Was that curriculum designed for a school originally? Actually, I have no idea. I just, uh, I'm wondering was, because I'll say that one was analytical grammar. Ah, uh, okay. And I've never actually looked at that one. I know some people who really like it, but that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, no, and I think that it's a common problem with grammar texts is that they are too complicated. You know, it's as if the more obscure the rule, <laughs> the yeah. more it, it's just, anyway. Well, that's like phonics stuff. You know, I made up my own phonics curriculum, and, but I'll hear from moms that are like, hey, you know, I was doing this other one and I switched to yours and I'm so glad because the other one had a studying phonics for five years. And I'm like, five years? Like, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I've been, wanna, we've been studying phonics for five years, but that's another okay, issue. Okay, but, <laughs> but, but, you, but you only did it because you needed to, right? Yes, They're yes. prescribing this right off for everybody. No. And right. to Instead me, of saying you study phonics until you can read and then you're done. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And if you're not, then you probably have dyslexia, which I did not know until I discovered this. So yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not, con it's not making connections. So, but I just no. thought, man, how, how to kill the love of, of reading would be taking a kid that basically knows how to read and making him review and review and review instead of letting him read material. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is why with dyslexics, what do they tell you? Read aloud a lot. 
because yes. you don't you Which want we already them, had been yeah. right yeah. but i mean you you probably did that by instinct but it's yes. so important because they need to love books in yeah. order to be willing right. to put in the work to learn to read because it's so much mm-hmm. harder for them to learn to read yeah, right and that's something you don't often find in grammar books is anyone who actually loves grammar <laughs> teaching oh, I, it I did get one from the library though, and it looks great. What's it called? Um, we need to know it. I, I know. I, I need to look it up uh, really quick. So I'm sorry. Okay. No. <laughs> but yeah, it's using that knowledge. You know, here, here's a sentence, maybe even here's an actual sentence. Let's look at it and play around with it. It's a puzzle. Yeah. And that was a problem with a different, yet another grammar program. When I taught writing, when my kids were all little, I taught middle school writing classes. And there were some kids who had done a popular at the time grammar program where they'd memorized a lot of things Mm. and they could do the memorized formulas. But if you just put a sentence up on the board and started talking about things out of order, just like an actual conversation and playing around, it didn't translate. They had memorized the patterns, but they couldn't apply it. And it's the application that matters, you know. Right. Um, Right. So my, the book that I'm just checked out and it's got great illustrations of a squirrel in a tree and all the different prepositions, but in a sentence diagramming form as the thing. So I enjoyed it for that, but it's called Rex Barks Diagramming Sentences Made Easy by Phyllis Davenport. And this Phyllis loves grammar and she's funny. And so it's, it's delightful. So Rex, like R-E-X? Yep, Rex Sparks. And it's split like they do. Um, you're diagramming the sentences, and it's it's got a little picture of a dog on the front. And they're not stupid cartoonies. They're just like simple like sketch drawings and things like that. It's great. Hmm. Awesome. Well, I might have to look at that. Brandy will have to buy it since I'm... Yeah, you're on a band. That's what yeah. I would buy. <laughs> so it contains many clever devices to help students with tricky concepts. The example is prepositions are to be remembered as anything a squirrel can do to a tree. <laughs> and, it's, and it's just got her sense of humor, enthusiasm. Like it's just a lovely grammar book. So I'm really, I, I just started it. It's great. I love it so far. Interesting. I, you know, that's funny because I just, our next topic is attitude of learning, <laughs> but I'm like, maybe it starts with attitude of writing because when you're reading a book written by someone who loves what they're talking about, it's really hard not to have the right attitude. I mean, some 12 yes. year olds can pull it off, but <laughs> with that said, it's really hard not to have a right, quote unquote, right attitude, the disposition of learning and loving when you're engaged with someone who is so obviously in love and it's pretty contagious. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think attitude of learning really kind of summarizes all like all of what we've already talked about are elements of the attitude of learning. Yeah, I think so. That's true. So attitude of learning, do we have any other basic applications that can be said in a short period of time? <laughs> Specifically for attitude of, of learning, if someone says, well, it's great to have the ideal of a good attitude for learning, but what do we do with, you know? Hey, I Johnny, had a 12 year old today. Right. Yeah. What do you do with Johnny 12 year old over here? So, well, I made him run laps. <laughs> good call. <laughs> That's my go-to strategy. Drink water, <laughs> go outside for a minute, come back when you're ready to actually listen. Mm. 
I guess I was not interrupting the learning, bringing in some self-awareness because there, there was, was none happening. There was no learning going on <laughs> because this student was getting in her own way and it was her attitude because that happens to us all. But to say, you know, take a deep breath. You know, I took away her pencil, took away the paper. Like we aren't doing anything until you're interested in actually hearing how to get the answer because it was some of that agenda going on. You know, she just wants to be done. The fastest, what's the fastest way to the right answer? It's like, well, we aren't going there. I'm not just giving you the numbers, telling you what to do to get the right answer. If you need math help, we have to start farther back, you know, conceptually. We weren't in fractions, but my favorite one for a long time that drove her crazy was, what is a fraction? We always started with, what is a fraction? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a division problem, FYI. (laughs) That's the correct answer. But we always start a little bit backwards and like work toward understanding. I mean, that is so that we can get to understanding because I'm trying to diagnose where is the understanding lacking. So we have to take a few steps back. Sometimes a child has no patience for that, but if they don't, the whole time is pointless. Like sometimes I'll just say to the child, like, go do your piano practice instead. Like you can't do this subject right now because you're not in a frame of mind for it. Mm. Yeah. Piano practice is actually a great one because it's totally a different kind of activity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or go ride your bike or go run or something. But we aren't doing this right now because your attitude's getting it, you know, block. I tell them it's blocking their brain. Yeah. It's yeah. great though, the, the ratio work that ultimately, hopefully brings us to the intellect, to that understanding that is, you know, that bigger idea, mm-hmm. um, not just the right answer, but beyond just getting that right answer, that, that real understanding of it and the ability to bring that with us forward. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. You have to be impervious for sure. Oh yeah. Amen. But it's worth it in the end, especially when, when they do overcome it and then they do understand it and then they're mm-hmm. able to do the work easily. It helps them realize that they were getting in their own way. And that's a self-awareness that's helpful, you know, because they're realizing they were getting in their own way. That's something that they can control. They can go do something else. You know, they're learning strategies and they're, they're growing from that experience of changing their attitude finding some strategies for that, experiencing the benefit of that. And I think that that's a huge part of their education. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about ending with this poem. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was sent to us. I pasted it in. It's almost the whole poem. It's not quite. But um, someone attended the Laughing Well Retreat. Um, Don Garrett hosted her winter warmer. So she does the Laughing Well Retreat, but like six months later, or five months later or something. She does it in the winter. And one of her attendees sent us a Facebook message with this because we had talked about um, a little bit about the self-forgetfulness and humility aspect Mm -hmm. in the retreat. So she sent us this poem by Wordsworth. And I thought, you know what? I'll read it if you guys are okay with it to kind of wrap us up because I think it's so good. Her name is Christy. I'm not going to say her last name because I don't know if she cares. (laughs) (laughs) I know Dawn won't care, but I don't don't know if she cares if I put her out here. So. Anyway, but um, I looked it up and this is most of true dignity, which is one of Wordsworth's lyrical ballads. Mm -hmm. So let's see if I can read poetry very well or not. We'll find out. 
But it says, stranger, henceforth be warned and know that pride, however disguised in its own majesty, is littleness. That he who feels contempt for any living thing hath faculties which he has never used. That thought with him is in its infancy. The man whose eye is ever on himself doth look on one, the least of nature's works. One who might move the wise man to that scorn which wisdom holds unlawful ever. Oh, be wiser thou, instructed that true knowledge leads to love. True dignity abides with him alone who, in the silent hour of inward thought, can still suspect and still revere himself in lowliness of heart. Mm, Love that. I may have my kids memorize that sometime soon. (laughs) Sounds like a good one for morning time. Yeah, really. And with that, I think we're probably done. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Brandy. It was a great conversation. Thanks Thanks for coming, guys. That was good. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of the episodes coming out this season, including a special bonus episode coming up soon. Every episode has a Scully sheet, and this episode is no exception. At Scully Sisters, we want to be people who apply what we learn rather than just listening and then forgetting. Scully sheets are individual journal pages to help you apply the ideas from the episode. Download your Scully sheet for free from our show notes at scolysisters.com slash SS68. If you would like to support what we're doing here at Scully Sisters, go to scolysisters.com slash sistership and select basic. You'll help us cover the costs of doing the podcast. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty rad podcast extras. Next episode, Misty and I chat Socratic discussion with Renee Shepard. Renee is a classical homeschool mom who's been receiving her own classical education while she teaches. This is an episode you do not want to miss. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone. So open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. Why were you late? Why was I? Oh, uh, I don't really have a good reason. I just Mm. was doing something and didn't realize how long it was going to (laughs) take. So now you've spoiled it because my son's going to hear this. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You might have to cut that out yourself. I saw the typing. Did you want me to? No, I'm trying. (laughs) I'm trying to fix this list of three (laughs) to be parallel. Oh, Oh, no. Oh, jeez.